this uh, subject matter that we're on is uh, very, uh, very critical right now, especially I would say uh, uh, when we made the decision to stay in the book of Revelation and not go to some other book uh, uh, and go to chapter 2 and 3, uh, we really didn't, uh, this was all done before all of the uh, upheavals that have occurred uh, in the uh, Mideast and so forth. So uh, I think the Lord sovereignly allows us to stay in the book of Revelation because it's a book that shows us God's purpose right on up through the very time we're in. That's right. Okay. That's right. So uh, what we have here is a little job that needs to be done uh, to set a, a kind of a background so that you'll understand the significance of these two chapters that have seven little epistles in them to each church that's mentioned, okay? Uh, for example, on your outline, the very first thing we printed is called is uh, Revelation 1.11. Here it says... Uh, this is, you know, an angel speaking to John saying uh, what you see write in a book, and that book became the book of Revelation, and send it to the seven churches, okay? Uh, to Ephesus, number one, to Smyrna, and to Pergamos, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Okay, these are the seven churches mentioned in Revelation. Now, uh, the job I have to do is I have to show you that these are not just some simple little uh, short epistles in the book of Revelation, but they have significances that are profound, they're meaningful, they apply to us today, and above all, to show you that they are prophetic in nature and have continuity up to this very moment and uh, will continue to have continuity until the Lord's coming back. Okay, so before we get into the church in Ephesus, we got to see all of the seven churches in uh, the book of, <coughs> of Revelation. Okay, these churches now are the churches to the seven cities. Therefore, they are uh, the local churches as revealed in the last book of Revelation. And I want you to get that significance. Because everything God has done from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through the Old Testament in his preparation of man for the coming of the Messiah through the Gospels where Jesus is born and incarnated. He lives on this earth for 33 and a half years, right? He goes to the cross and dies an all-inclusive death for our redemption. He is uh, buried for three days. And on the third day, he resurrects out of the grave. Death could not hold him. And in, in that resurrection, uh, he not only overcame death, but he became the life-giving spirit. And uh, after his resurrection, 50 days after his resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of the Father and became inaugurated to be both Lord and Christ, as it says in Acts uh, 2.37. He became both Lord and Christ, you see. And that was in his ascension. And then on the day of Pentecost, of course, he descended you see, and uh, he baptized his believers into the body of Christ, firstly, the Jewish element, 
on the day of Pentecost and then later the Gentile element in the house of Cornelius. And so uh, Christ, through all of this process in the New Testament, you see, finally became the life-giving spirit so that whosoever, according to Acts chapter, Acts chapter 2, whosoever would call upon his That's name right. shall be saved. You see. So now we know that if we call upon the Lord Jesus, who is now uh, near us, according to, according to Romans 10, he is in our heart and he's also in our mouth, which is the word of faith which is Christ himself, you see. So if we open our being, call upon him, believe in our heart, then he comes into us and as the life-giving spirit and indwells us to live inside of us. That's the revelation of the New Testament. And the New Testament is also a book that's, that starting from that initial time where he regenerates our being, uh, it tells us, basically, you can sum it all up, that this Christ has to grow inside of our human, uh, our human faculties. And he needs to become our life, our person. He needs to become our everything until we are conformed to his image. That's the New Testament. And this is all so that he can get something called the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not uh, an individual thing, but it is a corporate entity. And this, this is the church, the church which is his body, it says in Ephesians chapter 1. That's the church, you see. And the church is universal in nature. Okay, It means we're in the same church that the Apostle Paul was in, that we're in the same church that uh, anybody you can think of that uh, was born of God throughout all of history. We're in that same church. There is only one church, right, because there's only one body. And so uh, we are all in the same church. The Apostle John, even though he's not alive right now, belongs to the same universal church. Uh, however, there's a further progression of revelation concerning the church, and that is here you see that the churches not only are universal in nature, but they're local in nature. So there's one in Ephesus, there's one in Smyrna, there's one in Pergamos, there's, there's one in Thyatira, there's one in Sardis, there's one in uh, Philadelphia and Laodicea. There's, these are seven, these are seven uh, localities that existed in Asia. So the consummation of the New Testament is like this. It begins with the creation of man in Genesis. It goes through the preparation of the patriarchs and the law. It comes with the gospel of grace with Christ. It comes to the regeneration and the new birth of man uh, in the beginning of the New Testament. It talks about growth to be the body of Christ, to express him. And it ends up by saying that that's all realized in a locality where you live to be the church in a certain city. Right. So the consummation of all of God's work from Genesis to Revelation is to be a member of the body of Christ in the church which is in Ephesus or in one of the other localities or in the locality where you live today. Okay, that's the revelation. Do you see it? That the local churches are the consummation of God's New Testament way, or you can use the word economy, his, his economy. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, what we need to do here is to just see a little bit, if you'll notice on these points down here where it says introduction, uh, the churches, the first one is the churches being literal, okay? And that is that in prophecy, uh, we can't over, in this book of prophecy, of Revelation, we cannot overlook the fact that these were literal churches at that time, okay? They all existed. Uh, let's, this is, uh, let's say this is the, uh, 
edge of uh, Turkey. You know, Turkey today's Turkey comes down here, and and then this uh, Lebanon and Israel goes down here, and then uh, Europe starts over here with Greece uh, uh, and so forth. This is today's Turkey, which in those days was called Asia. Okay, or some people say Asia Minor. Okay. And these churches were right here, and they were literal churches at that time. Ephesus was a port uh, city, and it being the it being this the uh, first one was located right there. The amazing thing is that uh, these churches, being literal, uh, are all uh, kind of in order. It's amazing when you when you look at them literally, but uh, Ephesus Ephesus was right here, you see, and then the next church Smyrna was about here. Then the third church, which was do y'all know, Pergamus. Pergamus was about right here, okay. Then Thyatira was about right here. And then after that came Sardis, which was a little over this way. Then after that came Philadelphia. And then after that came Laodicea. Okay? So these seven churches were uh, right here in Asia, uh, the ancient Asia. We don't think of Turkey so much. We don't call it Asia today. But that is where the seven churches are, which was a province of a huge area uh, there in, in the Bible. We read these provinces like uh, Bithynia and Phrygia and Lydia and uh, Pamphylia and things like that. This little province here is, is the Lydia province, okay? So uh, these seven churches are right here. Now, they existed at that time, and the letters that were written, the epistles in these two chapters that uh, are just really a few verses apiece were written to churches that did exist at that time. In other words, they were literal churches. However, the book of Revelation is not, uh, uh, strictly speaking, a literal book. Uh, That's probably not the best way to say it. It is a literal book. What I'm trying to say is it, the the uh, book of Revelation is basically prophetic in nature, talking about things which are coming. You see, uh, when uh, you know in the first part of Revelation it says that John should write about the things which are, the things which are about to take place. You see, and so uh, this is this is John writing things that he himself did not have any concept. So the angel told him, what you see, write in the book, because John doesn't know what all this means, right? He did a lot of things in Revelation. He even fell down and started worshiping the angel because he's so confused about things, right? And the angel had to say, don't do that. Get up. Worship God. I'm just an angel. See, but what would you do if you were John and and, uh, you saw the whole vision, uh, you know, of time uh, up through Revelation 22 when you saw the new Jerusalem? I mean, you can be a little confused, too. He's He's just a simple brother on the island of Patmos, you know, and then he sees the vision of, uh, you know, of eternity, right? So we, we have to give him a little, uh, a little credit. I don't, I don't, I, 
with me, I not only would have fell down and worshipped, I, I probably wouldn't have listened when he said, get up, right? So, so we can't blame John that much. Okay, but they are, they are prophetic in nature. Not only were they literal, these words applied to those very churches at that time. But you see, there were many churches at that time. Many, many churches. And so, these, we can say, definitely were selected as seven. Seven is very significant. You see, that's a prophetic number. Seven is the number of completion uh, of God's economy, His way with with uh, His people in this age. That's the number of seven, just like the number of twelve is the number of completion in eternity. See, seven represents a complete, total uh, view. And so seven churches were represented here to show us and give us a complete view of what uh, would happen and how things would develop with God's church on this earth from the time of Christ's resurrection until the time of His coming back. So here, we could say we start, we start here with Christ's resurrection. Okay? And here we have His second coming. Okay? And here we have the seven churches that are mentioned here in these two chapters that give us a picture of what's going to happen from the time of His resurrection right up until He comes back. And where is He right now? You see... In, in his time frame of coming back, where is Christ? You see, do you think he's? Do you think we're here in history? Do you think we're back here somewhere in history? No, we're somewhere. Uh, we're somewhere in this zone in history. And uh, you know, today, the more you uh, hear about the news, you wonder if we're not somewhere around there, right in history, right? Okay. Now, uh, when, when the Lord Jesus comes back at His second coming, uh, He will do something, and this will be that He will set up His kingdom on the earth. And I left this space right here. His kingdom on the earth, which will be a thousand-year uh, uh, millennial reign. Okay? I always misspell millennium. Is it an E or an I? Okay. Okay. A thousand year millennium. And so this is, this is what uh, will transpire after he comes back. So right now we are in the time zone of waiting for the Lord's coming so that he can establish the kingdom of God and of Christ. You know, in Revelation uh, uh, 11, he says, Now has come, what? Salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. See? So we're waiting for this time, you see. And this time all depends on a lot of factors. Some of them are outward, 
like we're, we're seeing happen in the world today, the tremendous convolutions that are political in nature, rearranging the whole scope of Europe and the Mideast uh, precisely where Jerusalem is in the middle of it all, which will be uh, the precise place that the Lord Jesus comes back because he'll come back to the same point that he ascended, and that's the Mount of, that's the Mount of Olives. Okay? And he will establish his throne, and his throne will be in Jerusalem, and from that designation, you see, he will rule and reign the whole earth for a thousand years. <laughs> Just a wonderful thing, right? It's a wonderful thing. Okay, now, uh, who gets to be in this kingdom? You see, this kingdom, this kingdom has a king. Who is that? Christ. Christ. You couldn't, you couldn't miss that one. But it also has something else besides Christ. What's that? It has co-kings. And you will see, as we go through these churches, that the Lord gives a reward to all the people in all of these churches. He gives a reward to some of them. And these some are the ones that he calls later on in each epistle. He calls some to overcome the degradation that is around them. Right. And these ones he over he calls to overcome, he tells them all, every one of them gets a reward. And that reward in every case is related to something to do with being one with Christ as a co-king in his kingdom and concluding with being with him, of course, in the New Jerusalem for eternity. But the overcomers get the reward of the kingdom. Right. And those who are not the overcomers miss that reward, and they have to pick up they have to pick up their reward after this thousand years when uh, the New Jerusalem uh, comes, and that will be the common portion of all believers. But we have a kingdom reward, you see, that he gives based on his call. He who overcomes, will I do this? Will I do that? Will I give this? And so forth. He who overcomes. You read all the... Didn't you notice how many times? Every time. Every time. He who overcomes. You see, there's a kingdom here involved. Okay, now, as we go on, we'll see this. First of all, we have the first church right here, mentioned here. And this is the church that uh, uh, is the one we're studying today, which is a church in Ephesus, okay? Right here is the church in Ephesus in this little time frame here. The church in Ephesus does have a scope. It is a short one. So we call this the church in the beginning or at the in the initial stage. Basically, what we're saying here is this is a church uh, from the time it began in the New Testament really until John got his revelation because this was right at the end of his life. It's the church uh, that was really the church of the first century from zero to somewhere around 90, 100 A.D. Okay? And so Ephesus 
uh, starts with zero, of course, A.D., and ends with uh, about 100 A.D. Very short. Because things would develop after this that uh, would change the whole scope of things, and Ephesus would uh, Ephesus would fade off in its prophetic nature and would be replaced by the second church, and that second church is what? Smyrna. Okay. Smyrna. Smyrna is S Y. Smyrna. Smyrna. Smyrna would go from uh, where this ends off, and it would go to approximately the uh, beginning of the fourth century. Now, I'm going to put a date down here, but that date is not an absolute date. I'm just going to put, uh, you know, around, okay, circa, okay, circa. Y'all understand that? Or circa day, if you're, you speak Spanish, I think it means the same thing. Okay, we'll say around 325, because it's easier to write a number than to say, uh, to write down at the uh, beginning of the <laughs> fourth century. This is close, okay? So, uh, to about 325 A.D. Then, right here, we have the third church, and that's the church of what? Pergamos. Okay? And it went from around... 325 here till uh, the time that I would put around 585 just to put it in a ballpark area, okay, close to it. At, at, the, end of the, at the end of the 6th century, right here, toward the end of the 6th century, the papal system got officially uh, organized, codified, and established, you see, and that ended the church in Pergamos, and that began the church here in Thyatira. Okay? See, this is not an easy job to give you this background. This is, now, now I feel like I'm in, uh, I'm in class. Okay. This is this is when you you know how long is he going to talk you know what I mean when's the bell ring <laughs> right okay but you yeah, you need to understand this so this is a little knowledge for you see I don't I'm not for knowledge but you got to have a little knowledge here okay because the book is so prophetic and it's so profound that's why the second point is is the churches are are figurative and historical that's what I'm covering right now. Right. And number three, there's a continuation of the last four churches. Okay, so here's Thyatira. Now, Thyatira is here, and it's it starts here, but uh, we won't put an ending to, to Thyatira because Thyatira does not end. Thyatira continues all the way until the Lord's coming back. Okay. Then, uh, right here, starting uh, at the time of the Reformation, which I'm going to trace, I'm going to put uh, a definite number down here, and that's 1517, because that was the date when Martin Luther went and nailed the 95 Theses and challenged all of Catholicism to uh, rebut his theses, uh, his doctrinal theses, and so forth. So, uh, we have a church here that is called Sardis. Okay, starting with uh, 
this date, and Sardis also continues until the Lord comes back. Then we have another church, and this church I'm going to put starting at around 1825. And this church is Philadelphia. And there's something very special about Philadelphia. As we'll see, and this church continues also until the Lord comes back. Then, after 1825, let's, let's go to about 1885. We have the final church, and that's Laodicea. Okay? It's hard to write lower than you're standing. Okay? Laodicea, and it also goes until the Lord comes back. Now, now that I've got this much done, we need to consider a little bit what's going on with these seven churches. Okay. First of all, this initial church, Ephesus, was the, uh, some call it the apostolic church, the church during the time or the age of the apostles. It's the initial church. And it began gloriously. But by the time John wrote uh, Revelation, uh, we're at the end of the first century and problems have come in and things have gone downhill already so that the beginning of degradation has started. Church history is mainly a history, over 90% of degradation on man's side and faithfulness on God's side. Okay, so there's degradation on man's side and faithfulness on God's side. But praise the Lord, you'll see in the end, God, God uh, gets the victory. He wins the day. Okay, and he has a way to do it. And the more we get into this, the more you'll see how all of this works out. Ephesus was very good for a while. In fact, the word Ephesus literally means desirable. So that for all of her problems that we will see in the epistle to Ephesus, the Lord still had a lot of expectation in her, and uh, to him, Ephesus was still desirable. Okay? But when the apostles died off, uh, their second generation, their third generation, they did not maintain the pureness, the clarity, they, their focus was not uh, uh, what it was when they were uh, alive and so forth that we, that we read about in the New Testament. Therefore, the degradation set in, and this brought us to the second church, you see, which was from uh, 100 A.D. here to 325. What is this church? It's Smyrna. And Smyrna comes from the word myrrh which in the Bible is used as a spice to, uh, to use against death. People were embalmed and uh, perfumed with myrrh. Okay? Even they did this to the Lord Jesus after he was crucified. So myrrh represents suffering. And so this aspect of the church here in history is not the church of the first century, but it's the church 
of around 225 years, this is the church that is under the persecution of the Roman Empire, which you can see in the New Testament while Paul was even alive. You know, he was imprisoned by the Roman authorities, and he knew that he would be martyred before uh, he... Uh, you know, died of a natural death. He, he told Timothy, the time of my departure is at hand. That, that wasn't from natural causes. He was martyred by the Roman Empire. This began with the uh, uh, cruel policies against anything of the Christian religion initiated by the uh, Caesar, uh, the Emperor Caesar Nero. Okay, and we all know the infamy of Nero, right? A lot of things have been written about him, and he's been in movies and everything else, right? Nero was, of course, the one who instigated and set the policy that uh, the Christian faith was against the pagan religions of Rome and the pagan gods and goddesses of Rome, and therefore the Christians must be persecuted and put to death. This is a time in church history when all that persecution, whether they were burned at the stake or whether they were fed to the lions or whether all kind of things happened, they, uh, Christians were made sport of. And this, in the Bible, uh, in this epistle, it says, you will have trial for ten days, but do not fear, be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. These ten days... You know, 10 represents a, a full period of time, too. Okay. 10 days means uh, you'll be tried for a full extent, but no further. And these 10 days represent the 10 Roman Caesars between these two periods of time, and all 10 of them persecuted the Christians. And so the 10 days of trial are the 10 Roman Caesars that persecuted the church, and therefore, uh, prophetically, that is Smyrna, meaning the church under persecution. If you'll read this epistle, it is different from every other one in that there is nothing... There is no negative rebuke to the Lord to the church in Smyrna. Why? Because she's under persecution. She's keeping, she's being faithful to the Lord unto death. And so the Lord doesn't require any other burden. If you can do this, you'll get a crown of life. Okay. Okay, that's uh, Smyrna. Then, starting here... Uh, Something happened in 325 A.D. or right close to that time, and that is another Roman uh, imperial Caesar came on the scene. And uh, this guy became a fantastic figure in human history and in church history, and that was the advent of Constantine the Great to be the uh, <clears throat> imperial ruler of the Roman Empire. And Constantine the Great... Excuse me, I'm getting everybody's shoes. Hope they're, hope they're not your best shoes this morning. Uh, with Constantine the Great, he did a flip-flop. Okay? And one of his, uh, there's a long story to it, how much is legend and how much is truth, I don't know. But anyway, it's a famous story. He was out on one of his campaigns and this and that. And he saw a vision in the clouds and it was a big cross. And uh, there was some kind of speaking and he heard the voice in this sign, conquer, and so forth. And so he became, he became a political Christian. Do, do you all understand my terminology? He didn't get on his knees and pray for the Lord Jesus to come into his heart. He, he saw that he needed to embrace a new kind of religion. And listen, this guy had the audacity 
to say that from now on the Christian religion is the religion for the Roman Empire and, and, and uh, if you worship pagan idols, you're in trouble. He reversed all of that. And so that was uh, Constantine the Great, and this went on for uh, you know, two and a half centuries and, and, and more. And this was when uh, we could say Christianity those who were believers, you see, uh, suddenly went from those who were the worst people, the scum on the whole earth, to being top-notch citizens. You see? And all the pagan temples had to be destroyed, burned. Constantine was absolute. I will give him that credit for that. So uh, he burned and he destroyed all of that and he said and he set up a proclamation that if you are going to be a Roman citizen, you must also be a Christian. They must be one and the same. And so to be a citizen of Rome and to be a Christian and vice versa. It became a political uh, uh, position. And so you were a Christian. If you believe something else, you certainly did it in secret because uh, otherwise you'd get into persecution for being a pagan. You know what this did? This forced all of the Roman citizens, which at that time was the majority of the civilized earth, they fell into favor. To be a Christian became the in thing. Okay? And so, uh, uh, every, if you were born a Roman, you were born a Christian. All you had to was remain to do is at some point you need to be baptized. See, you, you're a Christian. You're, you're a Roman, you're a Christian. That's it. You think anything else, you've had it. And so you, then everybody was baptized according to uh, the Christian religion. Do you think that made them Christians? No. No. So we had a political Christian, just like today in some states on this earth, you know, we have the Christians versus the so-and-so. And, you know, it, this is very true in Lebanon. You know, we have the Christians, uh, right-wing Christians versus the moderate Christians versus the uh, uh, Muslim uh, factor. And, uh, you know, the green line divides the city of uh, Lebanon. And I mean, and the Christians live on... Do, do you think these are Christians that have received the life of God and are experiencing salvation? Or do you think it's their culture, their heritage? See? Well, as a result of this, Pergamus became a church. You know what the word Pergamus means? It means marriage or union. And Pergamus, we can say, is the church that because of its being uh, politically uh, set in a positive framework, at this point, the church married the world. And the world married the church, and you could not separate them. This is the church in union with the world. That's why the Lord's words to Pergamus are so strong, because they absolutely uh, uh, twisted and damaged and ruined the pure Christian faith because they allowed it to be married to the world under the <clears throat> pressure of Constantine the Great. 
and those who followed him. Then, at the end of this century, Thyatira was raised up. Uh, what this, what Thyatira, and, and, and uh, this is just not, this is not my interpretation. This, uh, I'm giving you uh, things that most church historians of the uh, last two centuries would agree on. Okay, I, I could, if I had some uh, books with you, I could show you some books where. Uh, Virtually, they're not all exactly the same, but the concepts are very, very similar. Okay. Some of you have Miller's Church History. I know you just read the first part of that and you can see the general concepts of what we're talking about here. Okay. Uh, Thyatira represents the papal system which we came to know later as the Roman Catholic Church because it was established in Rome. And when we get to Thyatira, we'll go into the whole history of that to show you just how it happened and, and uh, throw a lot of verses from Revelation and from other parts of the New Testament to give you a full vision of Thyatira because there is no church that the Lord deals with so severely as Thyatira. Thyatira has the, you know, in 1 Corinthians it talks about the deep things of God. <laughs> See, in Revelation, it talks about the deep things of Satan. It gets really deep. Okay. When this papal system was established, and I cannot remember the guy's name. I believe uh, the, the guy who really finally pushed it to an official conclusion and had it set up there in Rome, uh, I, think he, I think that was Pope Boniface. If I'm wrong, I'll have to go back and check. Uh, or some of you can. I believe that was Pope Boniface. You know, there's quite a few Bonifaces, but he, I think this was the first Boniface. If it wasn't him, I think it was Gregory, but I'm pretty sure it was Boniface. Okay. And this system was set up, and all of its elaborations, you see, and Thyatira is here. You know what Thyatira literally means? It means unceasing sacrifice or sacrifice of perfume. And just the word shows you a characteristic of the church in Thyatira, which prophetically means the Roman Catholic Church because they have the unceasing sacrifice. They, their mass is the unceasing sacrifice and they're always sacrificing. Some, there's a, there's, <laughs> if you don't see a candle burning, somewhere in their, in their uh, <clears throat> cathedral, then you, I don't think you've ever been. It's impossible not to have candles burning. Okay. This is their sacrifice of perfume. That's the literal meaning of Thyatira. <clears throat> I hope I'm not offending anybody, but if you've never been offended, it's better to be offended now than to be offended when the Lord comes back here. Okay, so get offended early and get it over with and get, get in the light. Get in the light. Okay, that's what the Bible is for. That's, a, that's especially what revelation is for. Okay, so you can have a revelation of what the situation is. Okay, uh, you wait till we get to Thyatira. Uh, you, you won't believe it. Uh, I'm not sure how heavy I'll be on that because I don't, I don't, but 
but Revelation is strong. Right. I guess I, I'll just have to, maybe we'll just read the verses and I'll just say, I'm not saying this, God said this, and just read it to you because it's heavy. It is heavy. Okay. Then, right here, you see, uh, and the reason I put this line here is because uh, the Roman Catholic Church does not have this kind of succession here. It has a beginning here. You see, it has a beginning here, but it does not, it does not stop and something else start. Something else starts, but it continues. Okay? And the way we know that uh, now is because we can look back on it and say, well, it's still here. We all know that. It's easy to see. It is still here. Okay? But in these last four epistles to these four churches, the thing that's characteristic of them that's very unique is that the Lord says something about His coming in these four epistles that are absent in the first three. I come quickly. Do this till I come and you will receive. And things like this, you see. So the Lord's coming is mentioned to all of them uh, in, in these last uh, four churches, okay? Yeah, it is amazing. The Bible is very amazing. There's a lot of amazing things uh, about it. I'll tell you another amazing thing. In the first... Now, uh, you, you couldn't figure this out for any other reason except you talk about it in terms like we are, and that's prophetically. But in the first three churches, the Lord says, you know, the Lord says... Uh, uh, such and such and such and such as a reward. And then he says, he who overcomes. But in the last four, he starts out with he who overcomes, and then he says, we'll receive such and such. He just reverses it. You see? So he's, so the, the Holy Spirit, in inspiring this, separates the three from the four. Just in its, uh, just in its grammar, in its construction. Okay? So Thyatira goes on to the Lord's second coming. Then Sardis starts with the Reformation. Right. That is is uh, the Reformation is like an is like a groundswell. You don't see it. It started uh, way back. In fact, there 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 were people way back here that were really reformers, but it did not affect the common people of the day because it did not become widespread. When we talk about 1517 starting the Reformation, we're talking about it starting to become something that people were exposed to uh, in the civilized world. And that, of course, was done through the instrumentality mostly of Martin Luther, though he had many uh, colleagues and other people at that time that uh, in various other parts of the earth or in Europe and so forth, were also strongly uh, taking the uh, position of standing against Thyatira, which is known as the apostate church, and standing with Sardis, you see, which, which uh, we would call the church that is the reformed church, or uh, uh, the church in reformation. Okay, we all know there was a great reformation in the 16th century. Okay, starting in Germany with Martin Luther and Switzerland with uh, Ulrich Zwingli and so forth. Many other people were part of this reformation process and it became very popular. Uh, sorry to say, 90% of it also became political. 
and the people who for, uh, you see, there's a long period of time between 585, you see, uh, and uh, when Thyatira begins at 585 to 1517, you see, we have nearly a thousand years nearly a millennium of time when there was nothing but Thyatira, the Roman Catholic Church, with, uh, with, with the uh, inculcation of all of its pagan uh, ideals and so forth absorbed into its religious system. And when I get onto that uh, sometime, I, uh, I'm going to bring some references to, so that you will realize, I mean, I, uh, this is not my dream, okay? I'm going to, I'll quote some authorities that uh, it'll shock you, okay? Just how things went downhill until Christianity literally became, in the eyes of God, very much in the in the in the uh, realm of a pagan religion, worshiping they do not know what, having all types of objects, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But here. Praise the Lord for this. A reformation came in Amen. to stand against all of that. And they recovered the way to be saved. And that was you could be saved. Now, all the way back here to 1517, to the common person, it became clear that you could get saved not by the uh, sacraments of Catholicism, but by uh, simple faith in Jesus Christ. That was the great milestone of the Reformation right. is that faith in Jesus Christ would save you and not sacramental manipulation. That's right. So, we do thank the Lord for that. Amen. If we didn't have that, we wouldn't be here today. That's right. If we didn't have salvation by faith alone, we would not be here today. We would not have the assurance. We would still hope that somebody reaches us with the last rites before we kick the bucket. Right, we have to have the we have to have the seven sacraments. Really, you know, people really get nervous whether or not they really have had the proper experience of all seven sacraments. They're getting real nervous. I mean, ugly people, gangsters. It's amazing on their deathbed, go get the priest and get that get that uh, get that uh, extreme unction. That's right, extreme unction. So you can have the last sacrifice and you'll you know you'll be okay oh it's it's paganism it's paganism that got in you see the leaven got into the loaf this was this was uh, prophesied in Matthew 13 okay fine flour is Christ but the leaven is the doing of the devil okay so leaven got into fine flour <clears throat> Uh, I don't want to get stuck here. Okay. Anyway, praise the Lord. A thousand years. You know what? You know these thousand years are very significant. There is a context because all this time, this thousand years, this this particular church, which we call Thyatira, which uh, pre-symbolizes the Roman Catholic Church. Which is still on the earth today. It really, it really, through its uh, missionary zeal and endeavors, it spread to the whole, to the whole earth. And so now, <laughs> there's Catholics everywhere. You follow me? Even in, even in the United States, such a enlightened country. Uh, we have a lot of tradition. You know why? Because we are not originals here. 
we are uh, immigrants from Europe mostly and that's where it was so strong you see so mainly the reason people here are Catholic are not because of they are intellectually convinced of its truth but it is a tradition handed down to them through generations okay uh, even so it caught most strongly in the countries of Central and South America there you'll find it uh, not just one of the quote face but you'll find it as the predominant one very prevalent Okay. This thing spread for a thousand years. And this thousand years in secular history is known as the Dark Ages. The Bible was locked up. It was in Latin. No one was allowed to read it except uh, the uh, certain uh, papal uh, priests. And so all of that light was gone. Superstition took its place. There was no advancement of hardly any kind, not only in spiritual things, but in any kind of things. It was a dark ages because the light of the Bible went out because it was locked away and it affected all of humanity in all of their endeavors. There was no advancement in science. There was no advancement in medicine. There was no advancement in learning. No advancement in hardly anything. It, everyone just it just stayed level, except uh, because of superstition, it really went down. You see? And religion was so political and so mixed in that uh, if you were going to be crowned a king, you couldn't do it unless you had papal authority to support you. And there was more than one king brought to his knees and humiliated before the presiding pope of that time. I can really, if I had the time, I'd tell you some real stories. Okay, the Dark Ages. Well, praise the Lord, we broke out in 1517. Martin Luther walked boldly up to the, to the uh, quote, church door and nailed his 95 thesis and says, you know, tell me why. This is not the truth based on the, what the Bible says. From that day, he never lost a fight. Right. That's right. See, he knew the Word, he knew the Bible, and so forth. He never lost a fight. And the other reformers were exactly the same. They challenged the Catholic theologians openly in all the towns and villages together in the town hall, and they would challenge them to debase openly with uh, one stipulation that the final authority of who is right is determined by the word and not by a papal decree or a papal bull. A bull is a decree. It's not, not, not an animal. It's a cannon, okay? Not a gun. Okay. Well, the Reformation was glorious because some people genuinely experienced Christ as their Savior. That's the glorious thing. Second of all, it did succeed in throwing off this thousand-year-old oppressive thing. I, I just don't want to get into it, but listen. Thyatira, the Roman Catholic Church, during this thousand years and sometime after that, due to its uh, persecution of people who were not Catholic, 
piece was called the Inquisition, mm -hmm. mainly take mainly carried out by the Dominican Order in Spain. And listen, more people died under the hand of the Spanish Inquisition than uh, than Christians did under the hand of the Roman Empire when they persecuted them. So religion killed more Christians, real Christians, than than uh, politics did. I bet you didn't know that. It's, his, it's history. It's documented history. Okay, then, uh, you know, it's funny, but uh, inwardly, there was a reformation. But outwardly, you know what this period, you know, starts in, 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 in human history, this period starts? This is called the Renaissance. This is the revival. This is the recovering of all the things. You see, when people threw off all the superstition and the darkness and the Bible got put in the common, into the hands of the common people again, all kinds of uh, innovative things started happening outwardly. Men's minds were liberated uh, against superstition, you see. I mean, kings... Uh, it, it, during that time, it was so easy. You see, if I, if 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 uh, the Pope doesn't like what's going on, he just takes a whole province, or in some cases, a whole country, puts him under a, a papal interdict, and says this whole country cannot take the sacraments. And if you don't take the sacraments, this means you're you're going to you know where. And that would bring such tremendous pressure on the king who did not want to go along with that that eventually he had to humble himself and submit to being a Catholic else his people would uh, usurp him and there would be a what we call a coup or uh, uglier word, there'd be an assassination. See, So they had no choice. Pope just says, no sacraments for that country. Everybody just, it's over. I'm going to hell. It's over. Do something. Oh, we have to have this. This is how bound they were. And when all that got lifted off, politically speaking, all kinds of things start happening because there was no one there to threaten their so-called eternal destiny. Anyway, I'm still getting too much here. Okay, so we have Sardis, the Reformation. You know what Sardis means literally? Literally, Sardis means restoration. Literally. Our remainder remains. Something came in to restore the church, at least enough of it. The remains of what God had begun in Ephesus and the total revelation, they got enough of these remains to bring people to Christ and to throw off Catholicism. Okay. Sardis then represents the church in Reformation, and this church lasts from the time it started up to the Lord's coming. The Protestant Reformation took off. It, it uh, went into the state churches, the Lutheran Church, which is a state church of Germany, the Anglican Church, which was a state church of England, and so forth, uh, a number of state churches. And this Protestantism uh, prevailed. It split off into a lot of branches, and it prevailed all over the place. Okay? 
until we can see that this is what we call the Reformed churches that were protesting what they considered the heinous and evil ways of Thyatira. Right. They were protesters, and that's, that's why they became known as Protestants. They were protesters. Okay, so this is really the church here. That's uh, you, you might say this is uh, this is Catholicism. Okay. Catholicism, and here you can say this is Protestantism. And it continues to the Lord's second coming. It has it has some remains of this, but it does not. Uh, it says there, uh, the Lord says, "I have not found your works complete before God." So they had part of a recovery, but they did not have the full recovery. So this is this is a kind of a, a remainder. But anyway, we know this is Protestantism which involves a lot of things and this is going on today and it's all around us in every civilized country okay then in around 1825 was raised up the church in Philadelphia I don't want to say much about Philadelphia but because this is a church that's so real so precious one day we'll spend all day on the church in Philadelphia okay it's worth it it's worth it in this early 19th century, around 1825, some brothers were raised up in England and in Ireland who threw off not only Catholicism, not only the state churches, but anything and everything led by uh, uh, John Nelson Darby and some other of his colleagues initially who was who was an Anglican clerical person. I mean, with the robes and everything. When he took off his robes, and said, that's it. He never put them back on. And they began to have a church life that was one that we call Philadelphia. Philadelphia means love of the brothers, brotherly love. And this church was the church that was on God's heart. And for about 50 years, 60 years, this church very hidden and concealed from the world because they absolutely denied to have any publicity whatsoever. They wanted to remain hidden and they wanted to remain pure and they wanted to remain absolute and faithful to God's Word and so forth. And, and for 50 years or so, the, they, the thing just spread all over the place but it was small and hidden. And all the brothers were loving the Lord. All of them loved one another. And they all were... And, and, and most of the revelation we have today, the basic revelation we have today, is not from the Reformation. They only gave us, I would say, between 5 and 10% of our revelation that we have, that, that an advanced Christian today can get in bookstores. Okay? But 80-some-odd percent of the revelation we have today came from those 50 years when the brethren uh, there, which later came to be known as the Plymouth Brethren, but from the, that one of the headquarters was uh, in Plymouth, England. And they read and read and studied and studied, and, they, and if it wasn't in the Bible, they, they junked it. They tossed it. 
since they couldn't support it with the scriptures, I said, this, this is just tradition, superstition. Right, right. Throw it overboard. That's right. And so for, uh, for a while, yeah. it was really something. And boy, light started coming in. Light started coming in. Not from one or two people, from a lot of directions. They read and read and discussed, and they got light, light, light. Books, you, if you've ever been in a Brethren bookstore, man, you ought to see the volumes of books. These are not how to raise your kid and how to have a marriage and, uh, you know, how to, uh, how to uh, you know, do some, you know, what I call have, have your cake and eat it too type Christian books. Not those kinds. Heavy commentaries on the Word from Genesis through Revelation. Yeah. People like Kelly and Ironsides and Panton and Pember and, my goodness, some of the great names. Even George Mueller was one of them. Most people don't realize it. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the, there, there was a kind of a fall, and they really, uh, from what started as a glorious kind of situation, really degenerated into something very uh, legal, very uh, dead, and so forth. And so around 1885, uh, Philadelphia fell to Laodicea. Laodicea is the most negative uh, spoken about church of all seven. You know why? Because it's 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 written to the ones who had been so high, and and now they were so low. And the Lord said, I'm, He said, I, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. You're not hot. You're not cold. You're lukewarm. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. You think you you think you're rich. You think you know so much, but you're blind. You're naked. You're wretched. You're miserable. I'm going to vomit you out. Laodicea is fallen Philadelphia. Now, what I can say is this. You see. Philadelphia continues to the Lord's coming. Laodicea continues to the Lord's coming. Right now, saints, all four, and this is God's view, not, not, not mine, okay. All four of these continue and are, are with us today. So in God's eyes today, if you are one of His saved and regenerated people, you either fit into Catholicism, Protestantism, Philadelphia or Laodicea. See, we're in one of these four conditions as far as God sees it. Because that's all it's spoken of in the Bible. And so we're not going to add to it. So we're either, we're either having our way in one of these four conditions. Well, are you here in Catholicism? Yes or no? I hope not. I hope not. The judgment is very strong. The judgment is fourfold on Catholicism. Fourfold. The Levitical judgment times two. The Bible says, double unto her double that which she has given. And then it says, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. 
Okay. Uh, you're, are, you're not here, are you? No. Okay, Protestantism, are you here? No. Okay. I hope not. Philadelphia, are you here? Yeah. Yes. I hope. <laughs> right. Are you here in Laodicea? Okay, let me tell you. Here's what it depends on. You see? The, uh, the original Philadelphia, the original meaning the ones that were in England and Ireland and spread from there, they, there was a stopping there. But you see, the principle and the reality of Philadelphia continues, just like the, just like the fallen part continues right here, okay? Throughout the, throughout the years, throughout the years, uh, you... Well, let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. You see, God is peopling His kingdom with co-kings to rule and reign with Him a thousand years. And there is no period in church history, absolutely not, where there are not some people in, in the situation, regardless of the time and place it was, that He did not call as overcomers and that they were not His people. Right. Though there might have been a smaller number, say, say uh, here, than there was here, and, and, and percentage-wise, still, there were always some who made it. So some out of... Uh, there, were, there were the overcomers out of this uh, age who, you see, made it into the kingdom. Same with Smyrna. If they were faithful to death, he gave them a crown of life. They entered the kingdom. They, they, they will uh, rule and reign with Christ a thousand years. The same with Pergamos. So worldly during the time of Constantine the Great. Still, there were some faithful. They will enter the kingdom, you see, and rule and reign with Christ. Then Thyatira, you know, the Catholic Church, for all the negative things I had to say about it, you have to admit there were some real uh, bona fide against... You know, against uh, all odds, they became regenerated, right. born again, and had a genuine experience of Christ. Right. They did. There have been Catholics ever since there was Catholicism who were absolutely redeemed, and we will see them in the kingdom if they overcame, and they'll absolutely be in the New Jerusalem for eternity. No, I ever doubt that. There has never been a time. Otherwise, why did he say, he who overcomes? You think no one overcame? Of course they overcame. You see, you know, Madame Guyon, do you think you will ever be as spiritual as that, as that, as that lady was? We have her ancient books. She was so spiritual, but she died a Catholic. She just really, to her, the whole system didn't make sense to her, and she just, she, she just, uh, she was a French lady. She just let it go. But she had a prevailing personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, and you can see this in all of her memoirs and things like that. Yeah, she's absolutely. Uh, uh, I mean, how can you say she's not an overcomer even in Thyatira, in the middle of the Dark Ages? Okay, uh, in, Sar in, in Sardis, Protestantism. You don't think you don't think uh, there are overcomers there? Listen, I was born in Protestantism. Not only that, I received the Lord in Protestantism. Okay, I was born again there. Okay, <laughs> I, I received the Lord there in a kind of a, 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 you know, a preaching of the gospel, of salvation. Sure, there be there's there are uh, many people. In fact, I know I know of some people. I met some people while I was there after I got saved. For the uh, couple of years I was still there in Protestantism, at that time I met some people who, to this day, I believe. 
if I could ever attain to their stature of, of spirituality, uh, I would consider myself uh, having passed the test. I would. I met, I met some people like that. You see. Okay. Unfortunately, uh, they were the exception. Not the rule, but the exception. To Philadelphia, you see, the thing with Philadelphia is, is yes, the Brethren movement stopped, and though it still continues, no one calls it Philadelphia. And if you go there, you will not feel you are in the reality of Philadelphia. Okay? Even though they have all the books and teachings. But throughout history, uh, there's a line here that has all of the truth, the reality of Philadelphia. And if you climb on board this line, say right here, you jump on that line and you maintain the reality of Philadelphia, you see, then you... Oh, no, I'm sorry to say it. Right here in Philadelphia, if you do that, then you are a part of Philadelphia right. even though you weren't in the Brethren movement back then. Do you follow what I'm saying? You're a part of that. And there have been people and even groups that have done this and have jumped on here and here and there's a group and there's a group and so forth. And uh, down through church history, there were a lot of people uh, who for a period of time had the reality of everything Philadelphia talks about. You know what the problem is? In nearly every case, if you'll read the church history along this line, you'll see in nearly every case it went for something like 10 to 15 years that there was something really under the blessing of God. And, it, and then something happened. And I could tell you specifically and, and, and show you a few things, but, but we have to wait till we get on Philadelphia. And when that happened and when, and when it failed, there was no place to go but to Laodicea. And so some of the most pitiful situations today are the situations that it, for some period of time people had the reality of Philadelphia. But listen, regardless of this, this line inexorably goes on, will go on until the Lord comes back, and the Lord is coming back when Philadelphia is realized and fulfilled, and He will not come back. Philadelphia represents to Christ His bride. Right. To this church, there's not only no rebuke, but praise. Right. But praise. Hold fast that which you have till I come. That... You see, no man take away your reward. I come quickly. He's running to his bride. I come quickly to you, Philadelphia. You see, in all of them, it says, He who overcomes, trying to spotlight individuals because the Lord cannot allow these systems to go into the kingdom. But he does allow the individuals to be plucked out and go into the kingdom. But with Philadelphia, it's different. In God's eyes, that is not a system. That is the reality of the experience of Christ expressed through brotherly love. Okay? And to this church, he says, in a very wonderful way, you see, to you, I will give the keys of David... The keys of David, David is the one who brought in the kingdom in the Old Testament. He would give the keys of the kingdom. And this, you see, this is not, it also says he who overcomes. So you don't go in as a group. But here there's a special word so that the doors, you know, this is where it says, 
I open a door that no man can shut and shut the door that no man can open. You see, there's a a door open to Philadelphia and because this is what's on his heart, you see, there is uh, this preparation of the bride and Philadelphia has a unique spot. Not everybody in Philadelphia is an overcomer but it has a different relationship to the kingdom. It goes in to the kingdom, not only as an individual, but it goes in as a representative of what God's eternal purpose came to accomplish to produce the church, which is his body, which is his glorious bride. Okay. You all see the picture? Okay. I think I've done my best to labor on this a while. I, I don't know how to do it. I don't know the best way. Yeah. But I think I've covered everything I want to cover on the first page here. Yeah. Uh, the church is being literal. The church is being figurative and historical. The continuation of the last four churches. The speaker, which is Christ. Uh, I didn't get into that much, but I'll get into that later. Uh, the Lord speaks to all the churches. The overcomers, I think you know who they are now, right? Uh, their principle, uh, and that is that they are they represent a remnant of of a, a mass, and they come out. They're called out. They have a calling. He who overcomes, and they get a reward in all these seven epistles that relate to being in the kingdom. Yeah. Then the local churches. I've talked about the, their consummation, how uh, all of God's economy results in the being in the church in Ephesus and so forth. And they're saying this, which I don't have time to get into that. Okay, you got it? Okay, I feel like I've been uh, running wind sprints. (laughs) On the back side is the church in Ephesus. I know good and well we're not going to finish all this today because it's loaded. You don't know what all's in here. Oh, it's so wonderful. Listen, it was so good that last night before today, I had to put it down. I did nothing. I didn't, I didn't touch it. I didn't think about it. I was too afraid. I don't want to think about it at all. It just get me all stirred up, and I'll just, I'll just start writing things down. And I don't know what I'll do. I'll just foul everything up. I just said, it's too much. Stop. I didn't do anything. Well, it, it was really a boring night last night for me. I didn't. I wouldn't even look. I'd say, I need to look, I look at this. I'm not going to look at that. If I look at that, then something will happen. And if anything else happens, this is going to be in big trouble, right? Too much. Okay. Now, uh, I'm trying to save time. I wish you'd read this stuff on the front, but not right now, okay? This last part about the Revelation 2, 1 through 12 is exactly what's on the back side. So we'll read all this together, okay? Now... Okay, uh, on the back side, here is the epistle to the church in Ephesus. Yeah. And so uh, let's all read this together. I might stop you, okay? Let's read it. To the messenger of the church in Ephesus writes, These things that he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, Mm, mm. Read the whole thing. Okay. I know your works and your labor and your endurance, and that you cannot bear evil men, and you have tried those who call themselves apostles. 
to the church in Ephesus. Now, you see, it starts out where the Lord is speaking. But if you'll notice down here at the end, it says in, in uh, Roman numeral 8, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to what? Churches. 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 So it starts out to the church in Ephesus, but it ends up to the churches, plural. That means that there's no limitation on who this word is for. So we can read it in all good faith that it that the Spirit is speaking it to us, the churches. Okay. Now, uh, the church in Ephesus, I would like, first of all, to point out uh, what I consider the three big things uh, from the things that I've been helped with in this with this church, so we'll go from from the general down to uh, to the smaller things, okay? And that way, uh, whatever time we run out of, we will at least have covered the bigger things, okay? That's fair, isn't it? I'd hate to spend time on smaller things and then we didn't finish, okay? So where I'll start is in. Uh, is in number five, but this I, but 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 I have this against you that you have left your first love. Right. Okay, uh, I want you to realize that Philadelphia is characterized by three big uh, points. That is love. Okay, love is one, and that verse I just read. Life is another because it ends up with a tree of life as a reward you get to eat of the tree of life okay then you have another big point and that is light and light here the word light is not here but two things as light bearers are and that is the lampstands on the corporate side and the stars on the individual side okay so these three words love life and light are the uh, paramount words in this particular epistle and if you grab hold of this and see these and see their interrelationship, you will have grasped the thrust of the epistle to Ephesus. Okay? Now, first of all, uh, uh, as we go through this, we'll go back and forward, and eventually you'll see where all these verses fit in. But uh, unless we use these governing words... It will not be so clear. Yeah. Now, uh, first of all, in Ephesus, 
which is desirable still to the Lord, we have to realize that here we have something of love to the Lord that is, uh, in God's eyes, very, very basic, very basic. For example, if I ask you, have you received Jesus Christ and been born of the Spirit, what would you say? Yes. Okay, you say absolutely yes. Good. Good. Does that mean that you have Christ in you? Yes. Yeah, absolutely yes. See, some things you don't have to... I mean, you may not be a co-king for sure. You don't know, but but you can say Jesus Christ is in me. You can be absolute. But some things we we have to be absolute about. Okay, you see inside of you. Yes. Does that mean that you have the divine life? Yes. Is Christ the divine life? Yes. Absolutely. He says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." Right. You have Christ as life. Is He your life? You know, Colossians says, when Christ who is our life. Right. So you have the divine seed. Don't you have the seed? Yeah. You know, in 1 John talks about having the seed in you. That's right. Okay, what is the seed for? Christ came into you as the seed. You were born and your spirit was regenerated. What's that seed supposed to do in you? Grow. Grow, you see. The really fundamental concept of the New Testament is growth. Birth, growth, and then harvest. Birth, growth, and harvest. You know what happens at the harvest? You get glorified. So regeneration, transformation, and glorification. Birth, growth, and harvest. Okay? Now, the question is, since we're talking to people here, if, if you don't have the birth yet, today sometime uh, pray with somebody and let Jesus Christ as the seed of life come into you. Then you'll have the seed. Then you'll be in the process to be on God's farm growing. See, we're all little plants on God's farm growing. Right? Amen. I have I have a seed, see, and you know some of the saints from uh, other places on the earth here, their their family tradition was uh, pagan. No, I mean they had Buddhist grandparents and uh, things like that, and uh, they're pagan. And then one day they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, they got saved. Either parents got saved and preached to them, or they or you got saved. Some okay, how'd you get saved down there in Mexico? What in the world? You're supposed to be taking the sacraments. <laughs> I've been in, I've been in Mexico City. I've seen I've seen all of that. My goodness, it's like it's like it's a cloud. Even the sun is shining. You feel like it's fixing to rain. It's thick there in Mexico City. It is really thick. Brother, you're blessed. Amen. There's 26 million people in Mexico City. Listen, listen. To be a Catholic is just about equal to being a citizen of that city. You can't deny. No one can deny it. You just go there. I promise you. You you just you just. There'll be there'll be idols all over. You just can't imagine. What are you doing here? You got the seed in you. You heard the truth of the gospel Amen. of Jesus. Didn't you get the seed in you? Yeah. 
Yeah, right. Right. It's really good. Amen. We have the seed of life inside of us. You see, this puts us in a position Amen. to grow. Amen. And growth is how we enter the kingdom. When we grow to maturity, we are afforded an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God. Okay? You guys stay with me, okay? Don't don't drift for anything. Right. Stay with That's me. Right. I'm going I'm talking about Amen. things that are so important Absolutely. to you and to me as well. That's right. I'm not I'm not here I'm not here talking Amen. like uh, right. this is a lecture. I, I need this. Right. I I need this, okay? And I know you need this. We all need it. Okay? We have this divine life inside of us. It's a it's a seed. Praise the Lord, it's grown. Amen. You're not just born again. Isn't that right? Wayne, you have the seed, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not and it has grown, hasn't it? Yeah. You're not it's not just like you just got saved and then nothing has happened at all, haven't you? Haven't you uh, had some growth? Yes. Are you? Have you had enough growth to enter the kingdom? Uh, okay. See now, now, now we just have to say, "Oh Lord, I'm not sure." But this makes us desperate for growth. We must grow. We must have Christ's life so He can grow inside of us. Amen. Okay. Right. So that we can be so one with the Lord, he can say, enter into the joy of the Lord when he comes back. See, we want him to tell us that. Good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Amen. That joy will be being one with him in, glorify, in a glorified state in his kingdom. There's a lot to say about the kingdom, but no time today. Now, the question I want to ask you is, how can we grow? $64,000 question, how can we grow? That's not much money now. That used to be a lot when that... <laughs> how can we grow? Okay, you're all, you're all right. But you see, be patient. Be patient. We have to take first things first. Now, what we're going to do now to get love, life, and life to see this, all of this is so that you can have a vision of how to grow. So that if you apply this, it will bring you all the way into the kingdom and you will have an entrance into the kingdom, the eternal kingdom, abundantly supplied to you. That's what it says in Second Peter. Okay. Don't you want? Don't you want that interested? Not just squeak in by the skin of your teeth, but abundantly ministered, supplied to you. Amen. So we have to have a little. Uh, we have to have some uh, help to see how it is that we can have this seed grow in us, conform us, transform us, and make us like Christ to be ready, a prepared bride. Okay. Well, the first thing I want to mention is this. The most uh, prevailing thing you can do 
to grow is listen to this it's so it's so heavy listen to this the best thing you can do to grow is love the Lord Amen Amen loving the Lord Jesus as a person is superior to anything that you'll ever hear, right. ever be told, any kind of technique, anything you'll do, whatever, any kind of schooling you might have, any kind of study you might get into, any technique, any methodology, all of that doesn't even rate. Right. It's like comparing Mount Bunnell to uh, Mount Everest in the Himalayas. There is no comparison. <laughs> To love the Lord is, is the basic, foundational, and absolute thing. Nothing else will cause us to be an overcomer. Amen. To love the Lord will. With all thy soul, with all thy strength. This is the first and great commandment, and to love thy neighbor as, our, as thyself. And he says, on this hangs all of the law and prophets. Right. You can sum, summarize it all in one word. Amen. You know, in Galatians, he said, you can summarize the whole law in one word. Right. What? Love. Amen. You see, we have, to, we have to love the Lord. Amen. Okay? And this love, you see, is prevailing. It's so prevailing. It's so prevailing. Amen. Oh, I tell you. Okay, let me talk to you a minute about love. I have some things to say about it. Number one, listen to this. Let me tell you what love is. First of all, love is the motivating power for you to live your Christian life. It is the motivating power. If you don't haven't realized it yet, to live the Christian life needs motivation. To do anything needs motivation. If you're not motivated, how can you be prevailing? Right. Uh, some of you have jobs, don't you? Several working here. Okay. Uh, if you're motivated highly, you do a great job. If you're motivated average, you do, you, you do a passing job. If you're not motivated, you just do whatever is necessary to get it done and not get fired. <laughs> it all depends on how motivated you are. Right? You know, if you rent a place, you're not motivated to really keep it nice, are you? But you wait till you own your own home. What? There's a problem with what? And you'll get it fixed right away. Because it's yours. It's amazing. It's a motivating power, you see. See, to love the Lord is... is uh, the motivating power to grow in life. Amen. You see, there's a difference between, in our Christian life, there are so many things that we must do and take care of properly. The difference is, is am I motivated? Do I want to versus do I have to? The I have to do this because it's required of me is the Old Testament. I want to do this because I love the Lord Jesus is the New Testament. See? So the motivating power of loving the Lord is here.
mercy. That is the love that is the love that we must have and keep because there's power in it. I'll give you another kind of power. Besides motivating power, it has melting power. It, it has the ability to melt a cold heart. You know, you know what the Christian life is? It's the Lord Jesus always running into obstacles in our being that are hard and cold. Frigid and rocky. And you can do whatever you want to. You can stuff it down. You can cover it up. You can put a bow tie on it. But it's still, it's still hard. And you can try any technique, any method, any gimmick, any whatever you want. You can go to whatever seminar you can have. You can go to somebody and get whatever fellowship you want to. But they will not be able to prevail. Do you know what? The love of God, the love of God is a melting power. Amen. And He, as love, you know, God is love. That is His most fundamental characteristic. God as love has a melt, has melting ability. Right. Listen, as we live our Christian life, we run into things, obstacles, situations, circumstances, all kind of things happen. You know what? It's at that time that we experience the melting ability of this love. And this gives us the way to go on, not stop, not be stunted in our growth, not level off in our seeking of the Lord, but it allows us to continue to go on. You know why? We spent some time in His presence and His love melted that rough spot. So you see, without the love, we don't have the way to grow. And if we don't grow, we don't go. So now do you, are you convinced love is, is the most prevailing way? It's not anything. You, you, you can go to, you can be the, have the greatest Bible teacher. You can sit at his feet seven days and nights out of the week. But unless you have the Lord's love there inside, it will not transform your being. So we have to love the Lord. Saints, please, I beg you, don't take this point lightly. To love the Lord, it sounds simple. Well, everybody loves the Lord. People say it even lightly. Yes, I love the Lord. But uh, love love is a big thing. It's so big that in this epistle, the Lord made it the crucial point. Well, let me uh, talk to you a little bit about uh, with Ephesus uh, you had a kind of a uh, oh at the end of that period uh, there, there began to be a degradation set in and the church the church historically began to slide downward and downward and by the time it hit Pergamus it shot downward because it married the world. The time it hit Thyatira, it was into the deep things of Satan. 
Okay, it was down. What it was really in the dark ages. Okay, it was dark in darkness. So the church went like that. Then the Reformation shot it back up, you know, with some recovery. Then Philadelphia brought it back to its to God's original intention. You, you follow me? In this degradation, we have to realize the source of it is in this epistle. The Lord says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. This is what he has against them. Do you know what else? Everything else they did was just great. But one thing, only one thing did they do wrong. It seemed like the good things outweigh the bad, you know, eight to one. But this one thing is, is because it's the thing, if you don't have it, you're going to lose the whole lampstand. I'll remove it out from your midst. You know why? Because love is the source from which all the things spring. And so the loss of it, the loss of it is the source of the degradation of the churches throughout all of history. Just this one thing. Uh, losing their first, you know, in Greek, this means best love to the Lord. They lost their best love to the Lord. You know, uh, it's interesting here because it does not say uh, that you lost your love. Right. So I ask you the question, did they still love the Lord or not? Yes. Yes. So it's not a loss of love. It's a loss of your best love. Right. Your number one love. So the lesson here is that they got into a situation where their love to the Lord didn't didn't uh, go out, but their love to the Lord. Uh, faded. The lesson here is not lost love, but fading love. I don't even think, I don't even think in, in some of the worst times we don't love the Lord. But the question is, is it a faded love? Or is it our best, our top, our first, our foremost love. Okay? Do you think the church on this earth, the universal church on this earth, would have been degraded if they would have kept their first love? Do you think heresy would have come in if they had kept their best love? No. Do you think all you just church history is the is, is reading about the biggest mess you ever saw? Do you think any of that would have happened if they would have loved the Lord Jesus Christ supremely? Would that have happened? No. No. That became the source. You see, of the whole the whole skid down. That's right. <coughs> They left it. 
uh, and of course, uh, with this, it's a serious thing. Uh, you know, uh, we have a big tree in our front yard, and something happened to it. I, I, we don't know. No, no one can figure it out. But two years ago, it was healthy, strong, full of green leaves. The whole front yard was shaded. And it was really pleasant. Now, there's... Uh, I can't say there's not leaves, but a lot of them are brown. It's not from lack of watering either, that we're sure of. But something has happened. Something at the source has happened to that tree. And it's happened to several of the very same type of trees on the block. That tree is not dead. But, uh, let's put it this way. It is fading, fading out. I say in one more, two more years, we're going to have to cut it down. It's fading like that. You know, this is what the Lord said about in one of his parables uh, how that uh, the owner of the tree came and saw no fruit and he wanted to cut it down and the servant said no let us till it more and give it another year and if it doesn't bear fruit then you can cut it down and and uh, the Lord agreed to that it was fading and even you know they tried to rescue it fast but it didn't work see let me tell you that tree is gone my wife said I sprayed it twice she made me get on top of the roof with chemicals on the hose I mean I'm just you know pesticide dripping all over my arm and spraying this whole tree all the time I'm spraying I said I, you know I love my wife I, I, you know <laughs> greater love hath no man than he would, he would get on the roof and spray something that I know is, is not going to do a thing she can't hear me. She can't hear me. So I'm just praying. So this is not. This is going to be nothing. It smells terrible. We'll... Something's at the source. You see, right. causing all the fruits to become damaged, ruined, degraded. Right. You see, this is fading, fading. Okay, that's just in general. But you see, we have to apply it to ourselves. This is not just a lesson in church history. This is a lesson how we can become part of church history to get on that line right there that goes right into the kingdom and stay right there on the Philadelphian line that the Lord says, I'll just open the gates to you and give you the key And nobody will shut that door. I'll open it and not, no one will shut it. So, this matter, you see, has to, we, we, have to, we have to get into it. And going over this, I tell you, I, I, I have really, uh, I'm, not, I'm not just giving a message. Uh, this word to me is, I, I've, yeah. Been, <laughs> yeah. I've been on my knees a while. Right praying about this because Lord my my love my first love Lord. my best love you see that's right it's not I, I know I love the Lord I can tell you that honestly God knows I love the Lord but that the question is am I do I have a, do I have my has my love lessened has it faded that's the question is it now is the Lord Jesus my best love or is he one of my loves that's the question.
oh, there's some rankings. You say, where does he rank? Is he one of five? Is he in the top five? Does he share the top five? Is he number six? Is he number two? See? You know, to love the Lord is like Mount Everest. And everything else should be like Mount Bunnell. You know, you know, the Lord Jesus told us to hate certain people like our relatives. Y'all know those portions yeah. in the Bible that says if you don't hate your mother and father, and then he says you don't even hate your own self, you're not worthy of me. Y'all know what I'm talking about? <clears throat> you see, if you don't understand the love of Christ, that, that doesn't make sense. Right. Because there are other verses that tell you to love these very same people. But you see, there's an order. There's, there are priorities. And this verse emphasizes that when it says first or best. There are priorities to the love of God and to loving the Lord Jesus. And our love to Him should be supreme. It should be top. It should be the highest. You follow me? And everything else should be on a lower level. Not that it's less than somebody else's, but that compared with what we have for him, it appears that way. Okay. My wife is not offended. In fact, she's very much for me loving the Lord because she knows if she's going to get any love at all, <laughs> it's going to come from me loving the Lord. That's right. <laughs> So she, 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 she's wise. She, she knows, she knows when I'm just loving the Lord. Oh, I'm just a, I'm just a, I'm quite a loving husband. Oh, so sweet. Oh, I'm just so, so sweet. Mm. But when I have my little difficulties and my little conflicts and my little wrestling matches with the Lord, uh, if my wife just even looks like she might be, you know, not what what then uh, I'm liable to come crashing down as somebody that's not very pleasant <laughs> See, you know the first fruit of the spirit mentioned in Galatians love, love. That's right. it's a fruit of the right. spirit if you're really one with the Lord Amen. you'll have love Amen. See, but we have to love him first love him. we have to love him supremely not fading we can't let our love fade. We can't. He's not number two or three. He has to be number one. And let me tell you, number two has to be, there has to be a big gap between number one and number two. Right. right. Oh, see, I, this is a big thing. It really touches me. I, I just feel, you know, in praying some this week, I just... So many things I just said. I, I have no heart to pray about all this stuff. Anything. I don't have a heart to pray about. Unless I love the Lord supremely. What good is this? Right. See? I'm not going to be motivated. I'm not going to... Things in me are not going to be melted. Unless I love the Lord supremely. Right? Well... <clears throat> You know, uh, you can see here that the church in Ephesus seemed like 
they towed the line on all the good things. Doesn't it? I know your works, your labor, your endurance. You tried the false apostles. They couldn't bear evil. They had endurance. They didn't grow weary. They hated the work of the Nicolaitans. My goodness, sound like a super church. But underneath all of that was something fading. And that fading thing was causing the corruption to start to appear. The leaves started to lose their greenness. And brown started to set in. And things were, and things were starting to, to skid and slide and go down. Why? They left Jesus as being uh, their, their best and first love. Listen, it's better to be short in some in some things that we do, or even how we say or serve the Lord. It's better to be to have shortness here. It's better to say, Lord, I failed you in some kind of way that we serve the Lord, than to be short in loving the Lord. Right. Don't say they're this. Don't don't say they equal each other. No. If you're going to fail, fail in something like uh, uh, you know not having grown weary or you, you, you messed up on trying the apostles or something like that it's okay to goof up on that you can goof up on that and still go into the kingdom but you can't goof up on loving the Lord and go into the kingdom what do you think? Do you think this is right? Doesn't done your spirit bear witness to this? It does to me. Listen, to me, oh, we're not fooling around with the religion here. We're talking about our relationship to a person. That's right. Absolutely. I would say this is the battle of the Christian life. From the day you get the divine life and it starts to grow in you, the whole battle is keep that love from fading. Amen. That's right. If it fades we lose. If we maintain our best love, we win. We're motivated. We overcome. It melts us. We get all the fruit of the Spirit. Everything follows if we love the Lord. It's a battle. If you've been a Christian one year, you know what I'm talking about. See, I've been a Christian now well over 20 years. I've never had a time when there wasn't this one battle all the time. Nearly a day. I'm not sure it's even not even a daily thing where you battle this one thing to love the Lord first. So how do we make We're getting there. <laughs> but if you're not impressed, I, then you, you won't be motivated. I, I have to. I have to. This it has to bite deep inside. Okay. Okay. Starting to. That's good. That's good. Okay. I'll tell you in just a minute. Well, uh, I'll tell you one key, Neil. I'll get to some other things later. But, uh, you know, one thing is, is that you have to realize that the Lord Jesus... Here's a key. Most people don't realize how acutely their relationship to Christ is a relationship not to a doctrine, not to a system, not to the orthodoxy of something, but it's a relationship to a person. 
if you see that, this will really help your ability to love the Lord Jesus. He is a most wonderful, lovable person. And to know him as a person is our high calling. Paul says that I may know him. Amen. To know, listen, I'll say this in a, in a secular cliche. To know him is to love him. Amen. That is one truth that does hold in the spiritual realm. If to know, you can't know him without loving him. He's, because he's that kind of person. You see? He's, I'm a person and you're a person. You see, how much we know, whether we love one another, whether we just get along, whether we tolerate one another, or even whether we hate one another, depends on our, on our relationship and what kind of person you are right. and what kind of person I am. Amen. See? He is, he is, he's the total person. That's right. He, you know, in Song of Solomon, it says he is altogether lovely. Amen. See, not like me. If you hang around me, you're going to find the unlovely things. But with him, you hang around him, everything, you go from love, loveliness to loveliness. Amen. He's really altogether lovely. And he's a person. And we're one with this person. He's in us. A person is in us. And we're one spirit with this, with this mm-hmm. wonderful Jesus Christ. Amen. Right? That's right. Uh, my wife is not here. I always, when you use love, you know, it's easy to use a husband-wife relationship. I love my wife. She knows that. I think she knows that. But I, I, love, I, I love her and so forth. And she loves me. Now, do you want me to tell you why I love her? This is really getting personal here. Let me tell you why I love her. Because what? Because someone says she loves the Lord? Uh, there are a lot of, a lot of uh, sisters that love the Lord. I don't love them. <laughs> I mean, I love them, in, I love them as a sister, but I don't, I don't love them. Because she loves me? Well, that's, that's her love to me. I'm talking about my love to her. Huh? Well, then what if... Uh, what if I don't do so well with Christ for, say, one year? What's going to happen to my wife? <laughs> Boy, that's going to be a rough year. 1990, black year on the calendar. Can you, can you imagine why I love her? Huh? I know her. Well, that's right. I know her. Okay. Uh, that's that's right, but uh, that's that doesn't tell a story fully. Okay, I'll tell you one. <laughs> yes, to know because I know where he's right. That, but it's the, it, that's that's step one. Step two is uh, I I haven't I cannot tell you why after I met her. After I met her and, and got to know her, I just loved her, and vice versa. I, I don't have any reasons. I mean, I, I, I can I can scrounge up some reasons, but but there that's not it. That's not it. I, and I'll tell you, those reasons can change. If you if you had, you know, uh, I talk to a lot of people 
young people, single, about getting married. They would like to talk about it at a certain time in their life, and I am very glad to talk about it with them because I am all for marriage. I'm a big proponent of it. But you know what? If somebody tells me uh, I might have some feeling about so-and-so, but I'm not sure, then right away, as far as I'm concerned, it's over. I mean, if you've got to figure it out, if you've got to analyze that, if you've got to say, well, there are eight points, I believe, that uh, are substantial enough for me to uh, release a little love. Then I'm sorry, you don't, you don't that you don't love that person as a person, unless you love them blindly, supremely, and and if I could say it, I'm just a little bit crazily. Right. <laughs> if you're marrying them on uh, on a merit basis, then uh, uh, you're going to have a very stiff family life. Legal, dead. You wait till things go bad and rough times set in and uh, they don't love you for who you are when they find out who you are. (laughs) Then, then, uh, no good. Let me tell you, it's that way with the Lord. You know, He does a lot. He does things for us. He gives us things. He's so powerful. He, I mean, He's so wonderful. You know, a lot of people love Him because He's so powerful. He's done supernatural things. He heals certain people. Uh, he did certain miracles in their life. Uh, I've, I've experienced maybe, if not big miracles, some pretty, pretty impressive little miracles. And I don't mean just one or two. But if I love Him for that... What if he stops that? You know, he did a lot of things for Paul, but the the big thing Paul wanted, he says, I'm not going to do it for you. I'm not going to take the thorn away from you. Mm-hmm. Well, then I'll stop loving you. You don't take my thorn, you don't get my love. <laughs> you know? One of those, I scratch your back, you scratch mine type of deal. No. No. If, if, if it's a conditional thing, it's not, it's not what we're talking about. I tell you, you love the Lord Jesus. I can't tell you why. I, all I know is when He comes inside of you, you put something in there and you love Him. Uh, you love Him. And you can say for this and this and this. And that's good. I, and, and we do need to count our blessings. That is good. It's a good it is a good practice to just uh, uh, really ponder what the Lord has done. But if you can't just love him for what he is, just because of nothing except that he's the Lord Jesus Christ, then you missed it. You love him for who he is, not for what he does or gives or or you know what what what. You love him for who he is. Well. How y'all doing out there? Amen. Okay, I, I see. I, I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm not. Uh, 
I'm not uh, <laughs> unaware that uh, it's not easy just to listen all this time like this. But you see, if I let you go, I won't get you back. In your mind, in your heart, your feeling. If we stop now before lunch, we'll lose it. Okay? I'm not unsympathetic. It's just I, uh, I know this thing, okay? This is my line a little bit, okay? I'll lose you. Okay. If I gave you any time, I'll, I'll lose you. So if you just will make it until we eat lunch, you see, then we'll be okay. <clears throat> well, the Lord says, remember, therefore, in Roman numeral 6, from whence you have fallen. You know, if, you, if we don't love the Lord firstly, we fall. It's, we're fallen. Then look at look at all they did. Their love, work, labor, trying the false apostles, endurance, despising evil, and the Lord says, "You fell." That's right. And then He says, "Repent and do the first works." What do you What do you think the first works are? <laughs> Let me give you a word of encouragement. You know. Public enemy number one is what? Fading love. Don't let public enemy number one sneak up and, and cause something to fade. The whole world system is geared to cool us off. Okay, So we cannot give in. We have to fight the good fight. We have to finish our course. We have to maintain... Amen. This, this element. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> well, somebody may feel like, well, this is just really my state. I really don't love the Lord as much as I did at some other time. I did have a better love for the Lord than I do now then what I'm fixing to say is for you right now. okay? Because what the Bible says is, <clears throat> right here, repent Amen. and do the first works. Amen. Listen, listen. Isn't it, isn't it a marvelous mercy that we can repent and go back to Jesus as our best love? Amen. This is our first works. See, here it mentions work, labor, and endurance. Did y'all catch that in number two? I know your works, your labor, and your endurance. You know what this is? This is all works, labor, endurance uh, supported by a faded love. Uh, somebody somebody read. Uh, Scott, Scott, you got your recovery version? 1 Thessalonians 1.3. Read 1 Thessalonians 1.3. Neil, you have it? First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.3. Listen to this. I'll, we'll read real slow. First Thessalonians? Yeah. 1.3. One, one, okay. Remembering. Remembering. Unceasingly your work of faith. Listen to this. Work here is mentioned again, but not alone. It says work of what? Faith. Okay. And labor of love. Listen. Labor of what? Love. Not labor. It just says labor here. Right. But here it says labor of love. Amen. Okay. And 
endurance of hope. Listen, not just endurance, but endurance of hope. Amen. In the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, right at the coming of our Lord yeah. Jesus Christ. Amen. You see, the first works. It's not that we don't do things. That's right. It's that we are in the realm of that verse right there. It's a work of faith. It's a labor of love, and it's an endurance of hope. Amen. That means it's filled with Christ. Amen. It's not just work, labor, and endurance and any other thing you can list. See, you know at the end of First uh, Corinthians 13, it says, Now abideth these three. Did you know it's these same three words? Faith, hope, and love. These same three words. And the greatest of these is, guess what? Love. You see? And you know what love is? Love is God Himself. We have to love Him as a person. 13, 13. Yeah. We have to repent and do our first works. Amen. You know, in our first works, we were so loving the Lord, we weren't even aware, hardly at all, that we were doing work right. or laboring. We were just loving and doing things lovingly, spontaneously. You know, if I have to really work at loving my wife and doing something to please her, <clears throat> it's not a happy time. But if I do it because I just, I just appreciate her, that's a joy. Amen. That's a joy. Okay. Okay, I think you got it. Don't you have it? Amen. Okay, then I'll start on uh, the second point here, and that's life. Love and life. And the life is in the last uh, Roman numeral 9. To him who overcomes, to him will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay? Now, do you know what life is? Does everybody know what life is? Yes. Life is God in Christ as the Spirit coming into us to regenerate us as a divine life to grow into our being and to conform us to His image and to eventually glorify our body. It is the eternal, uncreated, divine life of God. It is not the, it is not the prolonging of human life. That is not life. That is not eternal life. Eternal life is a person. Christ who is our life. Okay? That is what we mean when we say life. When we say, do you have life? Or when we say, uh, when we quote that Christ said, I came that you might have life and have it in abundance. We don't mean that he, he, that he, he came that you might have human life and have a real rich, abundant human life. No. Some of the best saints of God that ever lived on planet Earth, uh, for one reason or another, would would by worldly standards have had a lousy life. But they, they, you know, in the Bible says if you, if you lose your life in this age, you gain it right. Amen. in the coming age. So it's not human life. It's the divine life of God, right. the eternal life of God. Okay. That's what we mean. When it says to the overcomer, I will give him to eat of the tree of life, that tree of life is the tree of the eternal life. That is God in Christ as the Spirit Amen. to enjoy. It starts in Genesis 1, you see. 
and it ends up in Revelation chapter 2, and it ends up in the last chapter of the whole Bible, Revelation 22, when it, when it says that they had washed their robes and they have the right to eat of the tree of life. Tree of life is the beginning and it's the ending because it's the process triune God to be food to us. Okay, I think you know what life is. You know the story of the tree of life? You know what happened in Genesis chapter 2? You know there was a tree, and God put man in a garden, and uh, you know there were some things there, but there was an obvious thing there, and that was there were two trees. One was a tree of what? Life. The other was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, uh, uh, if you read that, all you realize, God, I mean, God said, if you eat of this tree, you will live forever. If you eat of this tree, you will surely die. The tree of life, if he would have eaten of the tree of life first, he would have received, that was, that was, that was God's extension to him. He would have received the divine life Adam would have. You see. Not only the human life, you know at that time human life wasn't a dying life. His human life was going to live forever. Until the fall came in in chapter 3, there wasn't any corruption or death. But you see, besides even living forever as a human, you need another life. You need the tree of life, which is God in Christ as the Spirit. So he put him there to eat. But, you know, a little temptation came in from with a serpent. And a little argument took place or a debate. Anyway, the wrong tree was partaken of. The knowledge of good and evil came in. And right there, spiritual death set in. Uh, promoting and being the source of all kinds of death, even physical death. Okay. So, you see, right here, uh, the tree of life was extended. That was just Christ there being offered to Adam to eat. And he would receive God into him. And he would have had not only human life, but eternal life. You know, forever. Really something. But Satan really intercepted that goal. And God allowed the decision to be made because he wanted man to make a choice, not just do it under a mandate. And Adam, Adam, well, Eve, and then Adam through Eve blew it, right? They raised the wrong tree. They got into knowledge of good and evil. And they died. They, they, at, at that time, the Lord... Uh, banished them from the garden they were not they were no longer in the garden and he closed the way to the tree of life you know he put the turning twisting flaming sword at the entrance to the garden and and no one could get in because the holy God would not could not be one with corrupted man and he was corrupted when he partook 
of the tree of knowledge. Isn't that sad? Yes. Think. This whole world could have been spared. Sin, death, corruption, all the negative things. Peter, eating the tree of life. Well, don't be too sad because you know what the gospel means? Good news. The gospel literally means good news. Christ, as the tree of life, came to this earth, lived on this earth, died an all-inclusive death to solve all the problems of sin, death, corruption, negative things. And when he was resurrected, death solved the problems that happened in the garden. And his resurrection made him available as a tree of life again. And so now every human being after the death and resurrection of Christ has now been placed back in the Garden of Eden experientially. And we now have the choice just like Adam did in that garden. Will we eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil like the world is doing? Or will we eat Christ as a tree of life? If you don't eat Christ as a tree of life, don't say Adam was a lousy guy. He blew it. If he, what a stupid jerk. If I'd have been there, I would have... No, today we are in the right. same right. setup as Adam. That's right. Christ is a tree yeah. of life versus the other tree of knowledge That's of good right. and evil. That's right. See? Well, when we, when we talk about the tree of life, we have to say Christ's redemption not only saw the negative things, but it released the positive. This same Jesus who died became the life-giving Spirit. you know what that means? That's a synonym for the tree of life. The life-giving Spirit. Now we can take Him in and enjoy Him. You see, the tree of life is with us, brothers and sisters. The tree of life is here again. You see? If we overcome, we get to eat of the tree of life. Listen, in our daily life, when we overcome, that's exactly what we do. We eat of the tree of life. Well, I could say a lot about life. Uh, I mean, here, the first reward out of the Lord's mouth is, I'll give you to eat of the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. This is versus knowledge and teaching. That's right. Do, do you know that teaching is mentioned four times in these seven epistles? Four times. There's the teaching of Balaam. Uh, there's the teaching of uh, Jezebel. There's the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And there's the teaching of the deep things of Satan. Four teachings, all of them negative. You know what? There's three eatings. Amen. Eat of the tree of life. Amen to uh, Ephesus, to Pergamos, eat of the hidden manna, and to Laodicea, if you overcome, uh, I will come in and feast with you. See, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something about it. See, knowledge and teaching, knowledge and teaching brings death, but eating Christ as a spirit brings life. Now, Now, 
you might not fully understand what I'm saying. I'm not against education. I'm not against knowledge per se. I'm not against reading books. I like that. I am a, kind of an incorrigible reader. I will read. Uh, I, I, I will. I mean, to me, uh, I'll read anything that is not. You know, I don't. I don't mean anything, but, but I mean my interest in anything happening is just. I mean, I read the Wall Street Journal. I mean, I because I just want to know what's going on. Okay. I, I don't, I'm, I'm not against that. But you see, there's another type of knowledge, another type of te teaching, that is the way people have taken to try to find their way to God. Right. And that way is a bum steer. Right. It is a dead end. Right. You don't know God through the brain. No. You don't know God through the accumulation of knowledge. You know Him by eating Him as a tree of life. Amen. There's no other way. You see? You know, my wife last week in her, at her, at, uh, where she works with another sister, they have a little <coughs> business they do. Uh, a customer came in, and, and this lady was really open to the Lord. Uh, they do upholstery. And uh, they told them, anyway, they started talking about the Lord, and they start talking about, uh, uh, you know, maybe getting together and so forth. And you know what she said? Uh, she's something along, I wasn't there, she's something along the lines of, uh, that would be really good. And she had said, my husband went to seminary. And so my wife said, well, uh, we, you know, I uh, hope it won't be too much for him. He said, you know what she said? In other words, it wouldn't be too, uh, he wouldn't feel slighted because there weren't a lot of teaching, something like that. You know, you know, you know what she said? She said, oh, you don't have to worry about that. Seminary killed my husband. So he'd be, he would be open. Well, uh, the, finally, what I want to kind of touch is this one thing. That is, love, life, and light represent what I would call a cycle. You must catch this. They are a cycle. Okay? Uh, by that I mean, uh, here is a cycle, okay? Uh, love is here. Uh, life is here. And light is here. Okay. This cycle is a circle. Now, I don't know where you are right now on this circle, but you experience this as a cycle. For example, if you love the Lord, if you love the Lord in a fresh way, you know what? You'll want to eat Him as the tree of life. You'll want to eat Him. You'll feel drawn to eat Him as the tree of life. And you'll enjoy, the one you love is the one you enjoy. You'll enjoy Him as the tree of life. And if you enjoy Him as the life, that will bring you into the light. You see? You cannot cook up light. You can't work it up. You can't fake it. You can't even read about it. 
you can read you can read Matthew and still be in darkness because light is God himself God is light but if you enjoy him you're brought into light just like 1 John 1 4 says in him was life and the life was the light of men as you enjoy him you know what when you're when you're eating supping dining feasting on the Lord contacting him fellowshipping with the Lord you know what happens inside your being the light comes on a shining is there it's an inner illumination and only Christians know about this and it is it is something that does uh, a specific job in us number one it exposes our situation we are short of the glory of God and the light comes and when we confess that the blood of Christ cleanses us and we have a fresh love for Christ and the cycle starts all over then you love the Lord more you know why because you see the Lord more and you see his replacing you more and you love him the more for that and your love is becomes more intense that makes you more desirous to be filled with life which is the Lord as the Spirit and that life is working in you and as it works it shines and it reveals your need and his supply and you you diminish and he increases and that cycles you into deeper love to the Lord and this goes on and on you follow me that's the way to grow in life okay now do you all got it Amen. to me it's really clear okay now what I think we'll do is uh, we'll stop here